Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Carrie Twig, who is a LinkedIn top voice and the author of the Career Stories Method, her biggest influence was her masterful storyteller dad. Without him, she wouldn't have even wrote her book. Carrie Twig, welcome. Hi. Hi. This is so much fun. My first time on video with you. I know. I was like, I don't think we've ever, I'm like, I know your face because I see your face, but like, yeah, I don't think I've ever, we've ever spoken video. So yeah, here I am. Da -da -da. You know, I actually felt nervous because I started it like right at six o'clock and I'm like, oh my God, she's an HR professional. Like I honestly felt like I was showing up to a interview right on time which is totally a no-no, right? Well, I'm not an HR. Like I have a certificate, but that was a mistake. Okay, so I'm clear. You're clear, yes. Yeah, and I was like, oh, she's like used to like production and broadcasting. So me showing up five minutes early, I'm probably late. Really? <laughs> yeah, so I like our assumptions. That's so good, oh my God. I just, I feel like your story has so many layers, but I've been doing some online stalking and okay. I love your pinned tweet on Twitter that says the thing that you are shy about mm -hmm. is what you can lead with. Yes. I feel like there are so many people who are afraid to go there. Mm, yeah. Do you Let's lead do with, it. yeah. Like, do yeah. you lead with things that you're shy about? Yeah. Like... <laughs> Everything that I show, I think, is what I was shy about before. So like my energy. Really? Yeah. Like so shy in like thinking that people aren't going to take me seriously, that people are going to think I'm too young, that they're going to think I'm childish because I come with this like energy and let's dream and anything is possible and let's go away about me that I used to like squash and try and not be as smiley. I'm so glad I have gray hair. So I think gray hair helped me to like own into the, you know, credibility. And then as I age too, I just go, oh, well, what you have is very special. There are so many people, like I'm 43. So there's so many people my age who have like given up, can't play, like, and I'm just like, I'm just getting started. And so now I know my energy is actually like, it's a gift. I love that. Have people ever picked on you because of any of those things? I think in like high school, I want to even be like, yeah. I feel like high school and university, I don't know if it was picked on, but it would be, yeah, just people thinking that I wasn't smart, that I was stupid because- That's not a cool assumption. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh, it's because the energy is so big 
So if I squash that, if I hide that, if I stay quiet, then I will be taken more seriously. But is that true? No, (laughs) it's not true. Well, I think like in one way, like I think if what you're doing stops people from connecting with you, that's something that maybe do a check. Are those the people you want to reach? And then is there some self-modification? So it's not permission of like, hey, be yourself. And if they don't like it, you know, screw them because there's a little bit of a balance. I think now people who don't like the kind of energy that I bring, we can quickly, I'm not apologetic about it. And we can quickly say, ah, we're not right for each other and move on. I feel like that's the best part of your forties. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But it took me a while to get there. Yeah. How did it come for you? I cared what people thought for so long. And I think I still do. Mm, Yeah. Does it change? Like the amount you care has changed. Maybe I will say though, that I am very lucky to have a dad that beats to his own drum completely. I haven't always been proud of that. It used Mm -hmm. to embarrass me actually. Yeah. But now I love that about him and he's totally oblivious to like what others care about him at all. Like he doesn't care about his fashion or how loud he speaks or how he sings or how he jumps into the party. And I'm like, there's beauty to that. It makes you want to be around that. Yes. Because there's so few people like that. Yeah. I want to say like my dad is like that. Really? Like that too. Except like, I think he was very shy, but everything he kind of did, he did it his way too. And I think had some pride. Like the biggest thing is that my grandfather bought a big chunk of land in this area in Winnipeg called North Kildonan. And he built his house on it. And then he bought four other lots like that were part of this land. And then his expectation was that like his children, the ones that didn't live with him because two lived with him, the other four children would all build their houses there. Every, all his children, except for my father did. Like they all built their house right beside their dad in adulthood and shared a big yard. And the yard had like bonfire and a swimming pool between two of the houses and like all these wonderful trees. And my dad bought this like house about a half hour away. He was the rebel. He was the rebel. Yeah. But I think he didn't like in the, we would call it the colony. It's not really a colony, but we call it the colony. And in the colony, you could walk into any of your family member's house at any time. Like at any, at any time you would need something, you'd walk in, you don't knock, like there was no privacy between those houses. And in the middle, so the lot that my dad didn't buy, they sold and it was the family doctor. So they knock at his door, you know, if anything was up wild, right? So I think that him moving away was a big thing. And he would always, like in high school, he got in lots of fights. Like he would always, yeah. I'm curious now though, like how long they all lived there? Like how long did that last? My grandfather passed away, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And my dad, then then my dad moved into the house, into that house with my aunt, his sister. When my dad died, they sold the house like a year later. And that was like four years ago. Another aunt who had a house, her and her husband passed, but the other two siblings still live there. How was there not drama? Oh, there was drama. Like... (laughs) 
like there's drama, but so my dad also, he got a great offer at work. So he was lucky in a way that he used to work for a railway company one day. He, and he was like a guy in the yard. He didn't have like a high school degree or anything. My, my parents were like teenagers when they had me. So he didn't have a degree and he's working on the yard and a train ran over him. over his foot yeah what yeah and he had he said he was listening to music so we weren't allowed to have walkmans as kids because bad things happen when you listen to walkmans yeah right that's terrifying yeah so he got ran over his foot by a train and told the story of like he got ran over it it squished his toes nobody noticed so the train kept going, ran over it several times. No one noticed. And then he kind of like woke up in shock and then like crawled his way to like his work truck to get help. So to him though, best thing that ever happened because they were worried about like trauma and they were worried like he wouldn't be able to get like do the physical work anymore. So the railway brought him up to the offices and him with his like storytelling talents and his relationship building and just like who he is. I think, and his like wild worth ethic, like moved himself up to like this national manager of routing all these trains in North America. Like his office was a giant screen where you could see every train. I think that was like in Western Canada, where it was and where it was on route. And he would like schedule them. Yeah. That was kind of an upgrade. It was. And he got free socks and shoes for life. So he'd always buy the most expensive shoes. Oh my God. But he was totally okay. Like for the most yeah. part. Yeah. He was to- like, we would go to the Did lake. he like pretend at all? He was like, oh, oh. <laughs> no. Keep like, that would... story going. No. Like he, so at work, he just rose. But like when we were children, we would go to the beach and he'd have like sandals on. And kids would walk by and he'd be like, careful, careful about those fish. And they're like, what? And he's like, look what it did to my foot. And he would show this foot with like three missing toes and kids would be like, ah, like he loved, he'd say it about our dog too. Like that our dog, like, does he bite? I don't know. Do you think so? (laughs) I love that. So we had a sense of humor around it. That's great. Absolutely. And like, didn't need to wear any special shoes. So that's a fantastic story. I love that. Whoa. Did you guys ever try to come up with funny stories because of him? Yeah. He was the master. Like, I think a lot of my childhood memories are just these stories that he told. So he'd make up stories about, like, we stayed at this cabin and the person who owned the cabin was called Stapon. And there's like a family friend. So around the campfire, he would tell these stories about old man Stapon. And like, and he once, so he tells stories about old man Stapon. Like, and old man Stapon was like this murdering guy, right? Like, so he just murdered people, lived in his cabin and murdered people and let us, rented it to us every year. So I love your face listening. Oh my God. I'm crying. I was like, oh my God. So we'd sit around the fire and then one, one night he was like, yeah, old man Stapon, he left a clue this time, care. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, go check that fridge. And there's like just a fridge in the middle of the yard. And he's like, hey, you'll find a, you'll find a head in there. And I was like, oh my goodness. So me and my friend Sherry like walked over to this rotten fridge and we like opened it up. And then an ax that was covered in blood came out. And then like something in a, in a plastic bag was at the top. And we screamed and we're like, it's true. It's true. 
you know, and in the morning realize it's like ketchup and it's like some ball that he put in there. He had crafted the narrative for like three years. And each time like he would retell the story and add a detail and then, you know, think of a way that he could get you. And so, you know, the fridge. Yeah. But he had tons like this, this woman's house that we would drive by. It was like this old house and it had some sheep in it. And he said that this woman like ate children. <laughs> And so if my brother and I were fighting in the car on the way to my grandpa's on the way to the colony, like he would just have to slow down and not even say anything. And we would just be like, like the old woman. And one day we saw a car stopped and a child like kind of being pulled out of a car by there. So like, I don't think it was real, but something was happening and that sealed it. Right. I can't believe like how into the stories he got. Oh yeah. He was just masterful. And it would be stories about like, you know, meeting my mother, dates that they would go, but then he'd mix it with like, you know, the classic story of like the hook. (laughs) So like a lot of them were horror stories, right? But he had a way of telling it. He had these like beautiful blue eyes and he had a way of telling stories that he knew when he had hooked you. He was aware of his audience. And I really wanted to tell stories like him. Well, I think you do. I failed a lot early because I would try and make up stories and then tell him like things that weren't true. And then he would go, he'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. And he'd go, don't believe it. You're lying. And I'd be like, what? And he's like, because of this detail care, like he could tell me what I did wrong in my story. So he wasn't like, he was like a railway manager, but he could dissect a story and tell me what I did to make him not trust it. Man, he sounds like he's hard to pull one over on. Oh, Did yeah. he bust you getting in trouble too? <laughs> well, he was also like a very like violent guy. So when I would get in trouble and like school trouble, he didn't, couldn't really say anything <laughs> to me. And I don't think I ever tried to pull anything. Like, I don't remember ever trying to pull anything. So you were a good kid. Yeah, well, no, but like I was violent, so I wasn't good. Didn't you say that you were a bully? Yeah, I was a bully. What? Yeah. Okay, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> know about that too. My parents had a like a rotten divorce. They were splitting, and I think some actions that my mom took would aggregate my father. You know, would would put him in a place. So instead of my family telling me that they were just like splitting up. My dad told me that my mom died. So I know. So which now I'm just like, oh yeah, it's another very well-crafted story. There was bits I didn't believe because I was like, well, why are some of her things still here? Like, why are the dogs gone too? How did she die? Why was there no funeral? Like there's lots of Good for you. You were digging. I was like 11. You're like, I'm calling you on your BS now. Yeah. And I didn't hear for her for a couple of years. What? And so, yeah. And then I found out like two years, like maybe, maybe it was like a year and a half or two years that my brother had been talking to her the whole time, but not me. And I also found out that she was going like fighting my dad for custody, but only of my brother, not of me. So I had a lot of like, I'm not loved, you know, and my, like my dad loved me, but he was a mess and he was always working. And so I had a really, I think it's just a strong, strong sense of like justice. And I'm going to like defend myself no matter what. And I'm going to defend my friends. So I don't know if I was a bully as much as like, if someone hurt my friend, they got it. Okay. It wasn't like you going after people. I mean, like, I don't like what you're wearing. Like if someone 
Like I'm <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I did that too. <laughs> I like I remember this is a stupid story. I have like a child this age now, and I would be like so mad about this entire story. Anyhow, I was dating a guy and he was walking down the hallway and he saw this girl named Jennifer and he side-checked her into her locker. And then she said, Don't lose her. And I was like, well, I carry Armstrong. That was my maiden name. Wouldn't date a loser. So then I would, you know, then I got violent on her. And I think I spit on her face and I just had like strep throat. And I think there was only one time when there was somebody that I like that I saw and a group of my friends, like I was like, let's get him. And I don't know why, you know, and we just like jumped him. And I don't like we all got suspended, but he never like he didn't go to the hospital or wasn't hurt in that way, you know, but maybe emotionally scared of young girls running out and attacking him. Yeah, it all changed. I think there's two incidents. So one is that one day my dad beat me up in a parking lot and these people across the street saw it. So I was late. So he beat me up and the police came and took me away. And then later that night, I don't know, like 40 people my age showed up at my house on their bikes and they were yelling like, come out, old man we're going to get you. And they were like standing up for me because they didn't know like that my dad hit me. And my dad was like pacing. He's like, you got to tell him to go. You got to tell him to go. And I said, I don't know if they'll listen to me. And so I went and I remember like standing on my, like the front of my steps and then saying like, it's fine. He's not going to hit me anymore. And they're like, you're sure? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like he'll go. He won't do it anymore. And he didn't. Really? Yeah. But also, you know, six months later, I went to live with my aunt at the colony. (laughs) So, you know, but I think he knew. So I think in terms of like getting things over, like, I don't think I was ever really trying, but I think in the time that I really needed him and was doing stuff that was like violent and not great, I don't think he knew how to help me because I don't think he knew how to help himself. Right. He was, he was expressing himself with violence too. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever wanted to like refine the people that you bullied and make up or tell them that you were sorry or anything like that? I did apologize, except there's one person who I didn't apologize to. And I remember years later meeting a guy and him saying he was dating her. And I was like, oh, I know her. Like I'm Carrie. And he's like, Carrie Armstrong. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you ruined her life. All her insecurity are because of you. And like, you know, she doesn't trust me because of things that you did to her. And I just said, you know, you're still dating. And he said, yeah. And I said, can you just tell Lori that I'm not worth it? And don't give me that much power. Like, I'm sorry, but don't give me that much power. I actually love that. And you don't know what someone else is going through. And I think even like, even now as adults, we have no idea what someone else is going through, you know? So I feel like this weaves really nicely into something else that you've done that I find is fascinating. You were the one that would essentially go in and talk to someone as they're being fired. Yes. Yeah. What I did was important, but the company would call in advance. So they would say, we're going to let Rena go at one o'clock on Wednesday. And I would show up at 12 or 1230, coach the manager how to deliver the news, make sure like they were going to say it in a way that was right. And then I'd be either in like another room or sometimes in the hallway, just like a weird place. They would deliver the news, tell the person that they had job loss. And then 
they would say, and you have a career transition helper. And then I would walk in and that boss would leave. And it would just be me and this person who just heard this news in a room. That is so much grief and so much sadness. Did that wear on you? No. You did it for seven years though, right? Yeah. And I what? still do it. I still get called. You still in. get called in. So oh occasionally you're like it. the consultants sure, of big that. Deal. Yeah. It never wore on me that part. And that part, because I feel like there's so few moments in life when you actually get to be in a business situation and it's real. Like, I think I always felt like office jobs were like, I'm walking around in a pencil skirt pretending to do like, I have this report or did that, but nothing. It's all, we're just playing pretend. Adults all playing pretend in this business world, right? But that moment of rejection and yeah, I experienced deep rejection before, right? So in that moment, when someone hears news that this unexpected or sometimes expected, whether they're happy about it or sad or surprised or mad, it can be helpful to have someone. Oh my God. And you I must was... have had some good moments too, where people like drop some F-bombs or like oh. want to go nuts. Yeah. Like the funniest one was a <gasps> woman. Oh, it was a woman in a warehouse who experienced job loss and we were sitting and she's so mad and she's just like swearing and she wouldn't sit down. She's like ranting and she's like, and who are you? And I was like, I'm this career transition person. And you may not want to talk to me today. And that's okay. What you're feeling is normal. And she's just like, shut up, just shut up. And I was like, uh, and I was, and she's like, when can I go? And I'm like, they're just going to bring your belongings from your locker. And then, and then we can go, but I do have to exit you out and I do need to get your keys. So she's pacing. And then her boss comes by with this box and it has her like work shoes on top of it. So she puts like the box down on the table and the shoes and the boss leaves and she takes the shoes and she's like, well, I'm not going to effing need these anymore. And then threw them at me like these work boots. And I was like, oh, duck, right? And I was like, okay, so you're ready to go. And she's like, yeah. I was like, I'll help you with your stuff. So I'm carrying her box and we're going out to the, going out. And then she's like, shit. And I'm like, what? And she's like, I'm probably going to need those boots. <laughs> You know, like she was going to get another warehouse job. Like those boots are expensive. So I was like, I'll go back and get them for you. You know, so went back on, got her boots, like met her at her car. And then for her, like we had an office. So after the day of the meeting, we had an office and then the company paid us to do career transition coaching. So it might be like four to eight meetings, but it was pretty stuffy. Like it was like 18th floor of this high rise building, like, and full of recruiters. <laughs> like it was a recruiting firm and we did outplacement and I, she was not going to feel comfortable there. So I would just meet her at like a Robin's Donuts and, you know, we would just do like our conversations there. there. Yeah, but she was right. Yeah. And then, so I think like, that's how I learned kind of coaching. I loved it because I knew I had seen people do like go through it successfully. And I was really like, this is happening because it's not a fit. And I know what it feels like to not fit in. And so as much as it sucks to like lose your job, even if you, even if you like it, if other people don't like you, you still feel it. And the quicker, like the truth is told and you can, you know, heal and figure out what makes you awesome and find a place that works for you the better. Like that's just start the real work. So yeah, I want to talk about some of that too, because I did also speaking of realness here, you yeah. talking about how people aren't really real on their resumes and how important that is because you have to be that resume. You have to be that resume in the interview in the job. And if you're not, then the job's going to suck. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which I think is 
relates to like your first question, right? Like lead with the thing that you're, that you're shy about. Yeah. Because if you, well, I did that because when I switched, I worked in the arts for a long time and then I switched to HR. And what I first switched, I decided that I was going to be this like HR person, which is super serious. I remember being like at a networking event and telling someone, she's like, she's like, what do you like about HR so much? I was like, I really enjoy, you know, analyzing collective agreements. Like what? Was that like part of a job description that you were supposed to like? (laughs) Yeah. She, I knew she worked in a unionized environment. (laughs) Like, let me throw some words in there. Let me reflect the resume I just created. Yeah, I heard this word when I was in HR. So like, as if someone would meet me and be like, oh yeah, she gets off on collective agreements, right? I don't even know what one of those are. Yeah, like she's a real follow the rules kind of person, right? So a collective agreement is like an agreement often in like a unionized workplace, right? So all the rules that both sides have to have to follow. So like Paul is like, do I look like the biggest rule follower of all time? No, I think on paper, I had all the transfer skills. I could write a great resume. But when I showed up for the interview, it was immediately obvious to people that I was not this corporate HR person that I was pretending to be in the resume for the job that I got for outplacement. I remember for that one, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to be me. And I wrote the cover letter from my heart. And that cover letter, the HR director at that job photocopied it and sent it to everyone in the company as the best cover letter she had ever read in her 35 years in HR. Was it was that... a beautiful cover letter. Yeah. Do you remember what you wrote? Yeah. I wrote first like an introduction that like that my, my mother had used their services and thought it would be a place where I'd be a great fit. So immediately built a connection, talked about having like uh, managed programs. So, you know, fit the job stuff. And then I said, although I've never worked in career transition, I've experienced it myself and also believe it's like the beginning of, of change, but I have helped people, you know, through, through hard times. Yeah. Like, so I just was like very real. Oh my God. And didn't... That must have felt so much better. Yeah. When I went to that interview, then they knew I came, like they knew I came from the arts and had studied HR and I would bring this like creative side to me, like to the work, you know, and in the interview, I just told a story about, I I was also volunteering at the children's hospital and mostly with like terminally ill children. Cause I was thinking about being a drama therapist and you needed clinical experience or experience in a hospital. So I was like, I'll volunteer with these kids. And a lot of the kids, their parents wouldn't want to leave their side. But when I came in, these parents would trust me. And so some moms that were like with their kid all the time because they might die at any moment felt comfortable going for a coffee or going home and having a shower and coming back when I was the volunteer. And so I use that example of the job interview and they're just like, yeah, okay, (laughs) she can handle high stakes, real stuff. And that's where I like to be, right? Like, so I think it like that helped and I wasn't trying to hide that I made these connections quickly, but I also came up with, you know, creative ideas. It was also the same place I did. I wasn't prepared for a presentation. Okay. Tell me that. So part of the second interview, I had to meet with the VP of this department and she said, you know, so part of this job is you have to give a presentation. And that's like, okay. She's like, I'm going to go get a glass of water. You just take a couple minutes and think of a presentation you can do. I'll come back and you do it when I return. So she got up, got a glass of water at a very short hallway, (laughs) came back, 
sat down. It's like corporate office, 18th floor. I was like, oh, she's like, maybe a presentation, you know, about something you did yesterday. And I went, oh yeah, I did do something yesterday. And I stood up and I took a pencil in my hand and I went, this is how you check a child's head for lice. And I mimed <laughs> like a whole, because I was working at this art center and there's a lice outbreak. So I acted out this whole lice checking tutorial. Yeah. And she, and she said like year, like a year after she had hired me, she just said, that was the funniest thing, Carrie. <laughs> She's like, but you, you were you and you took it seriously and you stood there and you weren't, you know, you weren't phased by the assignment. So I knew you could do it. Right. Did I know you're kind of weird? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure they hadn't heard that presentation before. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you talk about that, like giving somebody a little something about you. I also saw, hold on, I'm going to bring that up because you had another little something that I thought was funny. My uncle runs a parrot sanctuary in Edmonton. (laughs) He gave up ballroom dancing for it. And you said that you haven't told that story. So let's go there. I don't even know that story very well. Like it was just- All right, girl, bring out the knits. Yeah. I don't know it well. All I know is that he married my aunt and they met because she was learning ballroom dancing and her husband who was supposed to come to class with her didn't. And so she ended up dancing with the instructor and then they fell in love. But the guy that she married, parent sanctuary, sanctuary guy was a huge collector. He had a room. This is why it should be a story because this sounds like he had a whole room that was just filled with like birds and gerbils and like fish, like just the animal room. And then he had another room full of like baseball cards, which I think he sold to get her engagement ring. But he had, I think the world's largest stuffed animal. And this definitely (laughs) is not normal. It was a giant monkey named Maurice. You can't make this stuff up. No. And so my father just hated this guy, right? Like ballroom, dancing, huge animal, like huge stuffed animals, right? Like he, this is not a man because my dad was like, he liked hockey and beer, you know, like, okay. Your dad is a little bit of a bully too. My dad was a bully. Yeah. Like my dad, we had a couch where he would put his arm over the art, like part of this couch when he would watch sports, but he would wear like a tank top and hold his beer. And when my friends would come over and he wasn't there, I'd shove their head into, and we called it the pit spot. That is amazing. Yeah. So my dad like was a bully and he had, and and he didn't respect, and maybe he didn't respect Wes because he like, you know, stole. And he was also like best friends with my aunt's original husband. So, you know, other things, but it was moving day. And my dad was like, I can carry Maurice. And my aunt's husband was like, no, like it's a two person thing. And my dad said, no, I can handle it. And he went up the stairs and he went down the stairs and Maurice was like huge. So we couldn't, you couldn't fit the whole thing like at the same, I don't know how they even got it up there. Anyhow, my dad is like pulling and pulling and not and getting mad and getting by and getting frustrated. And he pulled the arm off of Maurice. I was worried about Maurice. I knew something bad. I knew something bad was going to happen to Maurice. And then the husband, like my uncle just cried and my dad just laughed Oh my God, that's so sad and funny. Right? And they moved. And I think my aunt works in like biology and grooms horses. And he has some kind of job, like in a, I don't know, I think works at like an accounting burn or something. And then rescues 
parrots. And I guess parrots are like, and, and I read an interview because I looked them up. I like Googled them. Like what? I don't talk to them. I don't know why I don't talk to them. They just, they moved away. You know, things got wild. So I read, you know, all these things about parrots and like how they're really not meant to be pets and how smart they are. And he really cares about them. But I just remember him crying about Maurice and just like, stat, like, like that's the stuff of fiction, right? Yeah, I, yeah, that's crazy. That literally, I need a tissue in here and I don't have one. Oh my God, that is so funny. I don't even know how to transition from there, Carrie. <laughs> Except for you did say that you missed when your dad would call you Care. Is that what he yeah. would call you? He called me Care, yeah. When did he do that? All the time. I think every phone call would end with, yeah, just like, love you, Care. You've got this, Care. Yeah. And so like towards the end, my dad got like sick, like kidney disease. So on dialysis, like that whole, like not fun process. And so his body and he was young, like he, he died. I think he was like 63, like a baby. Oh my God. That's a baby, right? That is. Oh my God. That's way too soon. Way too soon. And had been sick for many years. So I had to do like early retirement and it was so like, it was sad to see, but the thing that he had like up to the end was like stories. Cause his body, like he lost more body parts. It was more, it was like, uh, he had mobility issues, a lot of weakness. And so the only thing he could really do at the visits was like tell a story. And he was just as sharp, except it changed because I would tell him stories about, you know, what I was doing, what I was thinking, or, you know, when one of his sisters died, I remember telling a story and he just said, he say, uh, you know, care. That's exactly what I needed to hear. And I was like, ah, like that's, that's the approval that's I've become, <laughs> I've become the storyteller when you can tell the right story at the right time. And it makes someone feel, you know, the way that you were hoping it would feel like I was able to do that. When do you think he was the most proud of you? Like my whole life, he really loved me. I think he was even proud of me when I was getting into fights. <laughs> You my know? dad tried to encourage me to do that with that bully. He was yeah. like, why don't you just wait for her around the corner and get her? I'm like, dad, I'm not See? like that. I'm totally yeah. on her. Yeah. He tried to encourage that. Like my dad heard <laughs> at the, at the real estate job, he heard that his boss was having an affair with my mom, which I don't think was true. And my dad took like a crowbar to his boss's car and like still got to keep his job. But like, he was kind of like, unhinged. I kind of like your dad. I do. I, lo- I know. And it's really funny because my husband will be like, he's like, the stories you tell about your dad are so wild. And so when he met him, he was expecting this like bully bruiser, like gonna like get you. And he's like, he's just this small. And my dad is like, I don't know, like five, five, <laughs> five, four, just this little small guy, bald guy with these beautiful blue eyes, you know, wearing, you know, like Winnipeg Jets jersey and his little shorts. Like, like he lost, like, you know, like the, the bullyingness, it, it got tamed. He, like it became, it became different. He transformed, which I think is why I, like, I just believe anyone can transform. What do you think he wanted to be known for? Well, I think he had great, I think two things. So I think his his stories, maybe three things, his stories, his generosity, because I had friends growing up that were like had alcoholic parents and were also like very poor. And my dad would buy all their Christmas presents for them, or he makes sure that they always had food. Like he was very generous with money, maybe like, <laughs> maybe too generous, but that's interesting. You know, my dad's like just, that too. Yeah. 
like just would see it and know. And he knew too, like with my first daughter, I was like a single mom before I met my husband. Like my children have two different dads. And yeah, my dad, like he just knew when I was lying about having groceries, you know, and would send money. Like he just knew when people needed things. So I think his kindness, and he was very proud of his sports knowledge. So I feel like he'd want, like if someone talked about, I don't know anything about sports. So he really would be proud. And at his funeral, lots of people talked about, you know, his amazing knowledge of you could name a person and he could name stats and history and exact stories. And that's what he wanted to be. Like if he hadn't had this accident, like he he wished that he could have been like a sports broadcaster and he probably would have been like amazing at it. What's interesting, you tried radio too. I did too. Yeah, I did. Did he like that? Yeah, he loved. Yeah, because it was CJOB, which was like the number one station in Winnipeg on the news. And it would be like all my family, this is CJB all the time. It's like always permanently in my grandparents' house playing that I was doing. So to learn the radio, well, I was working as a receptionist. And I heard they didn't like the weekend person. So I asked the executive producer, I just said, heard you don't like the weekend person. I think I'd like to give it a go. And he was like, yeah, you can talk. Yeah, you get along with people. You're kind, you're responsible. Because I was this, this receptionist because and I'd calm people before they met him. He's like, sure. And he said, but you have to l- learn how to use the board first. So I would run the board and then give like the traffic or the weather in between sports games and my dad was like, that's my girl. Like, he, yeah. So maybe he was the most proud. He was very proud. And I only did it for like three months because it paid as much as my receptionist job. And the hours were like four o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And it was only going to be like that one gig and then running the board. And I was like, a, yeah, I was a mom. And I was like, I can't. I can't do this, but so I, yeah, said not for me, but thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. But he was proud. That's cool that you got to do that though. Yeah. And I think he was just proud of like, like proud that I bought a house. You also bought a cabin. Yeah. That was his dream. Like his dream was to retire and just live at a cabin, like watching sports like that. And so even at my cabin, I just like, I feel like he's, he's alive there. Like he would have loved he would love my cabin. That is so cool. Yeah. Okay. I feel like there's a couple other things that I want to talk about and you can say no, I don't know if you remember this when we very first connected, I think I was sharing with you that I had just gone through a miscarriage. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. I was in a parking lot of a grocery store. I was in a parking lot too. Yeah. I literally can still picture it because I was going through such a hard time. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like you handle people in grief and you yourself Mm -hmm. have gone through grief. And I was wondering if you ever shared any of your grief with the people that have gone through hard times. I mean, you did it with me. I did. Yeah. Because I had a relatable story, right? Like, I think I'll talk about Annie, who's my daughter who died which is probably the story I told you, the anniversary of my dad's death and his birthday. I'm like always writing. I like, this is how it feels. This is how the pain comes. You know, I just like lost my dog on like New Year's day this year, like share that. So yes, but also it depends on where that person is at. Right. So there's like that window of tolerance that if someone is deep in it, you want to try and move them to a place 
that they feel safe. And sometimes making the story, like if I move into a break, oh, you're feeling sad. Well, listen to my sadness. It can be a block to compassion. And oh, block that to is great so true. I literally told somebody that I had a miscarriage. I don't know if I shared this part with you. And then she was like, oh, I've had like 23. I was like, how is that even possible? And that really like doesn't help right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think you have to be strategic and that's a lot. You're just like, well, like 23 is a lot. What are you or supposed to it's do? Like, you know, you've got their miscarriage and this is something too. Like, I feel like people make the mistake of it's like, when you tell someone you've had a miscarriage, they're like, Oh, how far along were you? Like that is people's most awkward uh, first question. Like as if that changes the loss or the dreaming oh or that your life has changed. Like it doesn't. Yeah. But I remember that it actually, my husband was like, I'm going to talk. I was like, I think the last time I spoke to her, I was like, I think the only time we've ever spoken was this really intimate sharing of story while we were in parking lots of a miscarriage. Isn't so that weird. interesting? I, I just, I feel like we have like a similar circle of friends now, but we've never yes. circled back. So yeah, this I... is the whole reason why I love <laughs> podcasting, to be honest, mm-hmm. because, and, and I know that you'll resonate with this, but all of the people that have been unique in my story and had unique experiences with me, they can help me tell my story differently. Mm. And the way to differentiate your story and your podcast and your business is to talk about things that only you've experienced with someone else. And that's what I did with Jerry Springer too. Yeah, The fact that we bonded over both being in a parking lot and talking about losses of children that we've had. Nobody else has had that moment. No. And it's also like immediately by getting like, besides us being like, oh, are we late for each other? (laughs) Like our weird, whatever, like was also remembering like, oh yeah, I know this person. I know this person at a very human level. I know this person, like we never had to play pretend with each other. Which is something that you really like because you said you need to be real on your resume. You need to be real when you're firing people. Like you really gravitate towards real. Yeah. I did the Carrie 2.0 though. What's Carrie 3.0? You've done a TED talk. You've got hundreds of thousands of followers. You've written a best-selling book. You're doing programs. You're doing coaching. You're getting brought into companies to fire. What is next for you? What what haven't you done that you still want to like knock off your list? I got to write a short story collection. About parrots. About parrots, maybe one story that's related to Prince, like the artist or the artist formerly. You know, it's um, so crazy. I named my first car Prince because why? it was a 1999 Civic. Yes. I mean, the, the synchronicities here yes. are just crazy. Yes. Yeah. So I am coaching and loving it. I've gotten like a mindfulness certification and loving bringing mindfulness into this work too. And think it's making people be better storytellers um, and love and know themselves better. And then after I wrote my book, I was like, oh, I really always thought my first book would be fiction. So it's kind of, yeah, I just, in my head, I was like, you should have just wrote a book of story. Because you're so imaginative. Yeah. Yeah, Like, what are you, why are you writing this like career guide when you're Carrie Twig? Like you should be writing all your weird stories down. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm getting, I've been really good over the last year of just setting time aside, trying to balance. Like, I think I still coach more than I write, but trying to see the identity as a fiction writer as equal to, you know, being a coach and a speaker. I did write down a couple questions from the audience. All right. So let's just make them happy really quick. Yes. Okay. How long should a job seeker anticipate seeking? 
Well, it's a wild time in the world. <laughs> so, so my go-to answer used to be that it usually takes to, like an entry to mid-level six to eight weeks is pretty normal. If it's an executive, I would give yourself like six months to a year, depending on the role and the specialty, right? Because, and the bigger the place, the longer people know, right? But lately... <laughs> I've seen people land CEO roles in like two weeks. There's like a new job, like a creative leader job at like a big tech firm that used to take a long time and someone landed it. I think they had like, it was like a week and a half. So like from active job search, like your resume, your script, your introduction, your stuff is all in place and ready to go. I still feel like it's six to eight weeks, but in my experience, it has been moving very quickly lately. I don't know. Hey, it's a job seekers market. Especially if you'll go into the office. (laughs) If you don't want hybrid work and they don't have to change a policy as they're working towards and you don't favor remote, you'll, you'll land quicker right now. Yeah. Good to know. And what advice or like motivation strategy would you offer? Yeah. So know you're awesome. Like figure out what makes you unique and different from everyone else. Even if they have the same qualifications and exact work experience, what do you bring and how do you, and how you do that? I'm like, if you want to know how my book has like a, I use these index cards prompts to help you select the seven stories that are your best in your career and then find out what's in common with those and use that as your career brand. So like figure out what makes you awesome first, because you don't want to base it off a job ad. Cause if you don't get that job every time you have to come back, it's like you're just tailoring yourself for what's out there. So figure out what's steady no matter what. Yeah. So know you're awesome. Have some good practices in place to take care of yourself so you can handle rejection and it won't throw you off. Figure out what people want and what the connection between what you're awesome at is and what they're looking for is, and then tell them great stories that back that up. Don't be shy. You're doing everyone a favor by telling them how awesome you are and how you help. If you hold back, they don't know and they'll hire someone less qualified. Hone your storytelling skills. Tell stories where people can imagine you doing the work and can imagine the kinds of results you've got in other companies and they can imagine you doing that for them. I love that. Thank you. Okay. Final question. What would you like to ask my dad? I would love to know your dad's favorite story that his dad told him. Oh my God. That's so good. Nobody has asked that. Perfect. Oh my gosh. This was amazing. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing your dad's story. Oh, thank you so much. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Barry Twig asked me a very interesting question, but you know, what came to my mind is a little bit similar to her own story is that my father used to get into a lot of fights also when he was younger. You know, he lived in Brooklyn and the rough neighborhood where my dad grew up. And his brother Seymour, even though he was four years older than him, my dad was a bruiser and a football player, pretty tough in the neighborhood. As you know, he served in the military, in the Navy, in World War II. And anybody that would pick on his brother, that was like declaring war on him. And he used to fight a lot of Seymour's battles. And he used to tell me, when people are being bullied or people can't really physically stand up for themselves, someone's got to do it. And if it's somebody in your family, you've got to be able to protect them. If he's one of your friends, you got to stand up and protect them and not let that happen. 
the funny part is, is that your father also got into many fights, standing up for some of the kids that were picked on because they were Jewish and picked on them. You picked on me. So the fact is, is that I also got into a lot of fights also, not only defending myself, but defending other people that were vulnerable and that couldn't defend themselves, that were good kids. What did you think about her admitting to being a bully? Well, the funny part is, is that she has the experience of being bullied herself. And that makes sometimes, I think, what predicates that is that if someone is picking on you or hitting you, sometimes you take it out on others also, where then you hit and try to beat up other people as well. But I think she also did it a lot of times in, in defense of the situation you know, that she was in. But sometimes she went also out of bounds. I did the same thing growing up because when you're using physical force and it's been done on you, it's very easy then for you to project that onto others. So we both are guilty of that. What did you think of her career choices in being comfortable firing people? Well, what's very interesting is that someone who has been abused Someone that has been deflected from different experiences where they've been the victim, where they've had to uh, move on to new places and to new addresses and living with parents to split up is a very uh, devastating experience to her as well. And then her father, who she looks up to a lot of his finer points, but also had some pretty high level of negative points, too. So she's got a experience of seeing the ups and downs to life and understanding the changes that have to be made and moving on and living with other people. The funny part is is that she articulates beautifully both sides of the story. So she's experienced having a job and she also knows what it is for people, how they feel when they don't have a job. And sometimes what I like what she said is that sometimes if people don't like you, or they don't think that you're a fit in an organization. I love the way she said, maybe it's not something to hold you back, but something to really help push you forward and find where you do fit in and where you do feel more comfortable and where you do feel enthusiastic. And sometimes people need a new adventure. So she handles it with a positive approach, just like if you're going out with someone and got to be a connection that's going to be lasting. Otherwise, you're better off continuing the search. But a lot of people are afraid to change jobs, to change relationships, to move out of the town that they grew up in, because change can be a very big unknown. And a lot of people are afraid of the unknown. She's able to be a bridge, being able to show the compassionate side of a tough decision and trying to help people move on. She has the experience of doing it because she's done it herself. It's always a very good example. As you know, my dad also said to me that if you want people to respect you and understand you, you have to lead by example, by working with people and hearing them out and feeling what they're going through and being a good teammate. Otherwise, you can't gain that same type of respect. And she's learned every aspect of it. What did my father say also? You have to learn everything about a job. You want to run a company, for instance can't just be handed to you. You have to understand every single phase of it and experience it and be open-minded that you don't have all the answers and be able to learn from others. Yeah, I love that. You really have to model it. 
if you want the best culture. That's right. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 